You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Time for another edition of Green and Gold History, and we're here at Comerica Park in Detroit, which is absolutely, uh, absolute beautiful ballpark. Ray Fossey with us, and you know, Foss, when when you watch a game on television, you see the backdrop where the stadium is, and you see all the buildings of downtown Detroit. But until you're actually here, do you realize, wow, it's magnificent? You know, it is. And we had an off day here several years ago, and uh, we were staying downtown. So with nothing to do, like a like a mailman and postman, I decided to take a walk over. And in the outfield, they have kind of reminded me of the knothole game, where you could look through the knothole in a fence. But this is like a um, a rod iron fence that you could actually watch the game from beyond the left field fence. Didn't have to pay to get in and stand out there and watch it, which was kind of neat for this park. But, uh, you know, this has been here since 2000, and I was fortunate to play and broadcast at Old Tiger Stadium. So it's so much history of the Detroit Tigers. But this is a brand new park in downtown Detroit, something that Mr. Uh, Michael Illich, who owned the club and unfortunately passed away a couple of uh, years ago in February, but this was his dream to have not only a tremendous park to play in, but a great team to try to win a World Series. Unfortunately, during his lifetime, it never happened as a member or at least owning the Detroit Tigers. So you'll love this. One of my best friends, a catcher at San Jose State, uh, lives here in Birmingham where we're staying. And my my good friend Dave Jennings and he is a member of the Detroit Athletic Club, which it's the building right over the Chevrolet Fountain, the sign. And we were up there last night. So up at the club, you can sit up at the very top of the club, look down into the ballpark. The only thing you can't see is center field. You can't see the center field, but you can see everything else. So it's like people love just to go up there, kind of like how they do in Wrigley, and you can watch Tiger games. You know, Jim Price, great broadcaster, was with the 1968 World Champion Tigers, told me about the Detroit Athletic Club. And he says a very prestigious club which you probably got to see firsthand last night as you mentioned but I, I think the most important thing is that whenever people do look in they can see a new park and by the way where it's the Chevrolet fountain and there are Chevrolets actually up there during the time when the uh, auto industry was going through a very tough time now remember Michael Illich grew up in Detroit uh, he he was very fond of the motor industry. Well, I think it was about a quarter of a million dollars worth of advertising for the Chevrolet company to put those cars up on top. And during the particular year, he told the marketing tar- department, don't charge them. Let them have that advertisement for free. So that said a lot about Michael Illich and about this park. But to have those Chevrolets up there right now uh, and knowing that for a, a while they were paying a lot of money, but that particular year he said no. Well, the good thing, too, about the Motor City is that it's starting to come back. I mean, people used to talk about how you cannot be in downtown Detroit. All the teams stay out in Birmingham. They all stay at the the Townsend Hotel. (laughs) Uh, But now that downtown is really starting to come back, and that's great to see for one of the great old American cities. Well, again, I go back to the time I played here and broadcast here. We used to stay in downtown. It got a little bad. Uh, Jim Price tells a story about he was – traded to the Tigers in 1967, and they were burning the city. So he moved out uh, north, actually, near where we're staying. 
But uh, the, the downtown area, you know, they won in 1968 uh, when, when Price and, of course, a great Al Kaline and Norm Cash. Uh, there's so many, Mickey Lodich, so many great players on that 68 team and then won again in 84. But, you know, for a period of time in 84, I think they had riots when they won the World Series. And, you know, the downtown area was, was kind of bad. But it's, I'm glad to see, as you mentioned, that it is coming back. And if Mr. Illich, they call him Mr. I, had still lived and was maybe 50 instead of when he passed away in his 80s, that he probably would have revitalized revitalized the entire downtown Detroit. The Fox Theater uh, was one of his main parts where he brought that back to life. And, of course, the Comerica Park where we are. And then the uh, football stadium uh, where the Detroit Lions play across the way at Ford Field. You know, it's just a great area downtown. And I think to what you mentioned, that it is coming back. It may take a while. And when we go to Cleveland, you know, you're going to see really revitalization of downtown. But Detroit, a little bit slower maybe than what Cleveland's done. But still, they're coming back. You know, we think about, oh, the A's have been around since 1960, since uh, 1968. The Coliseum was built in 1966. And oh, the great history. They've been playing baseball here since 1901. And when you walk around the park, and I got a chance to do it yesterday, this place just oozes with history. Well, you're right about the 1901, one of the original franchises, uh, Detroit Tigers. And, and I think the only one that's retained the name and actually been in Detroit. Uh, other teams have been different names and moved cities, but Detroit Tigers, 1901, the first, one of the first uh, in the original America League, which, you know, they naturally didn't like it. They called them the Junior League. And even in 1904, I think it was the, the only other World Series besides 1994 when it was canceled. But 04, the New York team and the National League wouldn't play the American League because they didn't feel they were superior to, you know, they felt more superior to the American League. But but the 1901, uh, this it, what it started. And it's, you know, I, I think about the 1912 when the Tiger Stadium was built and I had the pleasure of playing there and facing the great left-hander Mickey Lolich and some of the great players in that late uh, 68, uh, late 60s and early 70s teams, and uh, to be proud to say that I took Mickey Lillich deep twice at Tiger Stadium, you know, and had a chance to be the starting catcher in a 71 All-Star game. Unfortunately, I stupidly charged the mound and injured myself and couldn't play. But uh, a lot of history, and especially at Tiger Stadium, where I remember, Tony, one time they had a bat giveaway, and they said, uh, they said, don't pound your bats on the stadium because they were afraid it's going to fall down. I mean, the, literally, I mean, the, the old stadium and you could just hear the bats on the on the, uh, the the floors, the concrete, whatever it might be. And it was it was scary to see it. But I also got to see Mark the Bird Fidris make his debut in 1976 uh, uh, with the Tigers. Pat Dobson uh, was pitching for the Indians where, where I was playing at the time. And we looked out and we see this guy talking to the baseball and patting around the dirt. Going, what is this guy doing? You know, but he was pretty good. And, and I do remember, if there's ever a time to have an attendance clause, he should have had one. Because every time he pitched, Tiger Stadium was packed to the gill. And they, those fans, because he pitched complete games, the fans would not leave until he came out and did a curtain call. At the end of the game, he'd come back out. And, you know, fans would just go crazy and cheering him, and they'd go back inside. But he was a phenomenal a, a pitcher, and he was so good, unfortunately, hurt his arm. Tony, I also remember when Billy Martin managed the Tigers. And, and I know in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, the grass was so high, you could have an Easter egg hunt because he had ground ball pitchers and he didn't want the ball to go through. And so that grass would just, you'd look at it and go, you got to be kidding me. This is so high here. But, you know, the nice thing about Tiger Stadium, and they've been at Comerica Park since 2000, that Tiger Stadium now, I think the, Bay, uh, the Police Athletic League uses that facility. They've built a, a complex and it's called uh, uh, something Cork Hall uh, around that corner. And they have redone that to where 
the late Ernie Harwell was very instrumental in trying to raise funds to keep it alive. And, and it got just so dilapidated that, that they finally said, well, we, we can't do anything with it. So they tore it down with the exception of the field. And so they have a lot of different things that are played there. And if you think about what the A's are hoping to do with the stadium downtown and utilize the Coliseum for similar events, that should be quite interesting that they would do it quicker than what it took the Tigers to do. But Ernie Harwell, God rest his soul, he probably would be very proud to know that old Tiger Stadium where he broadcast for so many years that it had now become part of the Police Athletic League. Yeah, all the great players. It's a, Whenever you go to a place like Fenway or Wrigley and you think about old Tiger Stadium where all the greats played there, they all played there. And I think you missed out on arguably the greatest all-star game of all time that all the Hall of Famers, all the great players, Reggie hit it up in the up on the tower, and you miss that because you charged the mound? Well, you, you have to realize, I was playing for Cleveland, it's 1971, and uh, we're playing the Tigers, and they were coming off a 68 World Championship. They had some of the great players. Bill Freehand was catching, Norm Cash, Al Kaline, and I remember we had a pitcher named Vince Coleman, who, uh, I think it was Vince Coleman, um, but he was a submarine-style pitcher, and he couldn't, you know, he, he was hitting guys in different things. Vince Coleman was a speed burner, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to think of his name, but his last name was Coleman. Not Joe Coleman, he was with the Tigers. But uh, but with the Indians, the the one thing I said, little prayer, don't let him hit the franchise. And Al Kaline was up. And unfortunately, the pitcher dropped down, and, you know, he went down. And I was helping Al Kaline up, dusting off his uniform. You okay? You okay? okay. <laughs> you know, and, and meanwhile, Greg Nettles is at third base, and he looked in the dugout, at Old Municipal Stadium, and, and Billy Martin's pointing at Bill Dennehy, pointing at him. And Jim Rice, who is broadcasting now for the Tigers, uh, was the catcher, and evidently Billy Martin said, hit the first guy. Hit the first guy. And I happened to be the first guy. And I went back in the dugout, and typically as a catcher, you take off the gear, and you go to the plate, and you, you know, kind of get where you want to set up, and you step out and look at the third base coach. I know where I put my right foot in, in the batter's box, and I look up, and he's pitching. So I stepped in. And Tony, I can still see him right now throwing and hitting me in the rib cage. And I'm thinking from the rib cage to my helmet, we didn't have ear flaps then. It was just the scully. So I'm thinking from that distance, I could have been down forever. So stupidly, I charged the mound. And as I charged the mound, Jim Price today says it was the first karate kick in baseball. Because as I went to hit, I literally, I went to hit him because I, I knew what he was trying to do. Uh, I knew he was trying to hit me and trying to hurt me. And so I went to charge, and I put up my fist, and he, I run in, ran into his cleats. He put his cleats up. And that's why that's what Jim Price said it's the first karate kick, because I ran into nothing but steel cleats. And I hit my right hand. I had about seven stitches uh, in my finger. I had my neck where I had a chain. It would cut my neck. And I'm laying on the ground, and Jim Price is saying, don't get up because Willie Horton's on top and he's mad. And I looked up and there's Willie Horton and says, Golden Glove Boxer. And he's looking down, let him up, let him up. I said, please don't let me up because I was afraid, man. I was afraid. But as it turned out, um, I had my finger where I had stitches. My neck was wrapped up. Uh, we went into Boston. I got the stitches out. We ended up going to Tiger Stadium. And, um, you know, unbeknownst to me, I mean, you know, then at Old Tiger Stadium, after that had happened, all the fans were really rabid fans. And, I remember going to the plate the first time, and uh, all of a sudden the ball comes close to me, and I go down, and they're just screaming and yelling, "Yeah, here we go again!" You know, it's going to be another one. But we went back to Cleveland, and uh, Denny McLean, who won 31 games, last pitcher to win 31 uh, in 1968, was pitching for the Washington Senators at the time, and he threw a slider, and I tried to hold up, and unbeknownst to me, my left hand had been kicked in this brawl. 
it didn't bleed, but it kicked. I got kicked. So as I tried to hold up, I just just tore the tendons or something in my left hand. I went back to the dugout. I could not pick up a mask or helmet or anything, and I, I was done. It took me about six to eight weeks, which happened to be at the time the All-Star game, which, you know, is the reason I didn't play. Uh, fortunately, I was selected by the fans, voted in by the fans. But, Tony, you know, I played in 1970 All-Star game, and even though the end was not what I had hoped it would be, there were 19 Hall of Famers on that team as well, or both teams combined, American National League. So I was fortunate to do that. But missing that All-Star game, and, and you know, at that time, uh, unlike today, where if you're injured or part of it, you still show up and be a part of the celebration, we didn't do that. It was, hey, Bill Freehan's a starting catcher. You're out of here. And uh, I did come over to Detroit with my wife, Carol, and we I th- actually, Bobby Goldsboro was a friend of Johnny Bench's, and we were up in the suite, and he was singing. You know, So that was the extent. Went back home, and that was that was it, and eventually came back. But uh, that's the story and why I didn't start the most memorable All-Star game in history. And you're right. Reggie Jackson hit the light tire. I could have caught Vita Blue uh, in that game. We became teammates two years later. Of course, that was his phenomenal season. But it, it was a it was a great all-star game, a great season. Uh, but as my wife tells me, she said, every time you charge the mound, you always came out bleeding. And it seemed like that was always the case. But this probably was the one that I remember most. But, I, you know, fast forward to Bill Dennehy, and he was on that roster. And um, in 1975, I think it was, we were in um, Mesa. And I was with the A's at the time. I'm sitting from my locker. It's spring training towards the end. We're just kind of sitting there going out and playing. This guy taps him on the shoulder. He says, you, you probably don't know me, but my name is Bill Dennehy. And my eyes, and I just, I took that bat and turned it into sawdust. I said, get out of my way. Don't stand there like I don't know you. He says, I didn't do it on purpose. I said, don't tell me that either because I know you did it on purpose. And that was the end of Bill Dennehy and, and me at that time because <laughs> I, you know, I didn't even know I was with the team. You know, we were teammates. I didn't even know it. And, uh, but I learned at that point, I said, no, I know you did it on purpose. I know what happened. So don't stand here and tell me that you didn't do it on purpose. What was it like going into an all-star game when you go into the clubhouse and you're talking about some of the greatest players who have ever played in American League history and you're just a young Ray Fossey walking in? What's that like? Well, first of all, to be selected by Earl Weaver. At the time, Bill Freehan was voted in, and uh, Weaver, Earl was the manager in the American League, and, and he told me, he said, uh, Freehan's going to start, and there are a certain number of innings he has to catch, and then you're going to be in there. And But to, to, to go to the workout, first of all, the Sunday night, Sam McDowell, his wife, Carol, my wife, Carol, and I flew to, to Cincinnati from Cleveland after I caught a doubleheader on Sunday, which, you know, hey, it's part of the deal. But uh, to, to walk into the clubhouse on Monday, the workout, and to see during my time, I mean, Hall of Famers, you know, Harmon Killebrew, Brooks Robinson, Tom Seaver on the other side, Joan Palmer on our side. I mean, all of these guys, Louis Aparicio. And the one thing that they did in the introduction of the All-Star game, uh, the lineup, Kurt Gowdy narrated is about a 30-minute video. And instead of just saying, playing shortstop, Louis Aparicio, they showed a highlight. So I'm watching this. And obviously at the end, it was all about the collision and all that stuff. But but to be in that clubhouse, and I remember running up and down the dugout and all the Hall of Famers who had been All-Stars before just sitting up on the top, you know, and just watching this crazy kid run up and down like it's his first. He knows what he's doing. But, I mean, it was a thrill to be in that clubhouse. And, and I can I, I talk to players today as they're going for their All-Star games and, and just they, all they talk about is, well, I can't see, can't wait to see this guy and this guy and this guy. Well, that was that way too. And as it turned out, like I said, of the rosters of American National League, I counted one time there were 19 future Hall of Famers playing then. And that, to me, was a thrill. 
And you're catching, and here comes <laughs> Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and the and Johnny Bench and these guys. Well, and you know the thing that I learned, and you know one cardinal sin of anybody, is to say figuring the game is over, and say see you next year, whatever. What Dick Dietz, I think Dick Dietz was catching, and he came up. They called him the Mule, and I said, Hey Mule, I'll see you next year in Arizona. He was at the top of the ninth inning. It's a home run. Next thing I know, I'm going up to hit, and he's catching. I'm going, I'll never say that again. You know, because you just don't assume until that final out is recorded that the game is over. But, uh, yeah, to be catching and, uh, you know, catch Catfish Hunter and uh, late Mel Stoudemire, Clyde Wright. See, I never knew in the game, somebody always said, what happened to baseball? And the misconception is in that All-Star game, I never touched the baseball. It flew over my head, thrown by Amos Otis. Clyde Wright was the pitcher. He was backing up, and Clyde tells me and told me in Anaheim, he's working with the Angels, he said, just watch the continuation of the video. You'll see me reach down and catch the ball. Because as the impact, my glove went, the ball went over my head, and I never touched it. Clyde Wright did. But that was an all-star game. Um, but I, I think back to the 71 that I couldn't play and being selected by the fans. That was a thrill to be there, but also to know when I couldn't play in that game in Detroit that at least I had played in one previously. And I think about old Tiger Stadium, and they talk about how the fans were literally on top of the field. Right. And you think about in the outfield, how the outfield came over the field. What was it like playing there? Well, the thing about the outfield and right field, um, the I think there was a street behind, so they couldn't expand. They had to bring it back towards. So it was about hanging over uh, about 10 feet from the right field. So you see a right fielder go back ready to catch the ball, and it's, it hits in the upper deck, and it's a home run. And But, you know, as a right-handed hitter, mine was to left field. Now, bear in mind, Tiger Stadium was 440 feet to straightaway center. 440 feet. It was a road trip to get out there. I saw Mark McGuire in 1987 hit one in the second deck. He played there for, I think, Team USA, and he was familiar with it, but he did that. It was unbelievable, 1987, as he was just first coming up his first year. But that stadium, with the with the flag flagpole in play, no, I mean, it was padded, but nobody ever had to worry about it. And whenever, I mean, that flagpole is still there. So if you, anybody comes to Detroit and they go to where old Tiger Stadium was, that flagpole is the remaining part of Tiger Stadium that is still there in left center field. That flagpole was in play over 440 feet away. They tried to do the same thing at Comerica Park, but they put a fence up because Juan Gonzalez turned down $160 million because it was too far to left field. So they moved the fences in anyway, but they'd saved their money. But Tiger Stadium, Townie, I remember warming up pitchers in, in, down in the bullpen, and they were on the field. The, the bullpen itself, it was you had to submerge like a submarine, and you're down at ground level. So you're sitting down at, at, in the bullpen at Tiger Stadium. If it started to rain, you better get out because it was concrete and it flood. And if you didn't get out and you tried to stay there, it was covered. But the water would come in, and you had no chance. So you, as soon as it started raining, bam, you're going to the dugout. But uh, the the thing about those fans, as you're warming up a pitcher, and we didn't wear masks and full gear like guys do, so I'd be done it. All of a sudden, they're throwing debris from the upper deck, and as you're trying to catch a ball, here comes a hot dog wrapper, or a hot dog bun, or something in front of your face, and you're you're moving back and forth. But it was dangerous to that to that point, and, and you try to have somebody security guard up there making sure they didn't throw things at you. But the one thing about Tiger Stadium had a very small dugout, and so many people, players, would jump up and get excited and hit their head on the concrete ceiling. Because you'd sit down, and literally it's about a foot between your head and the top of the, of the ceiling of the dugout, and it was concrete. So people would jump up, and, oh man, it hurt my head when you got excited. But their tunnel going up into the clubhouse, and the late Ernie Harwell, when they tore it down, uh, 
They said, Ernie, what would you like to have from Tiger Stadium? He said, I want the urinal. And everybody goes, what are you talking about? He said, you think since 1901 how many players of the great history of baseball have walked down those stairs into the dugout and taken care of business in the urinal. So Ernie Hardwell got the urinal at Tiger Stadium, and he put it in his house because <laughs> Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, I mean, you, you think of the, the superstars in the American League who had passed through that you know, it, it's a little gross, but it's true. It's a true story. It came out public, so it's not anything that out of secret. I mean, it was public that he said, I want that because of the great history of this stadium. But it was. Now, Ernie Harwell, when he broadcast, unlike the visiting, Ernie Harwell had a net in front of his broadcast booth. So if a ball came back, it would hit the net and not hit him. Now, on the visiting side, and I remember Carl Young was our uh, stage manager for, for uh, TV, and we're sitting there. He would stand behind home plate, or stand behind us, and the ball would come back, hit him in the chest. And he had a glove on. I said, Carl, you got to have quicker reflexes than that. Next thing, boom, he gets it again. I said, Carl, move out of the way. You know, you're going to get hit. But when, when I started on radio and we would, we would broadcast at Tiger Stadium, it was so close you could literally hear the umpire and the catchers talking. That's how close it was to home plate. And now it would go to Pittsburgh and it's so high up. But this was ideal. And I remember working with Bill King and Lon Simmons at Tiger Stadium. And we're sitting there, it's a very small booth, and they had a wooden area behind us, and then the uh, engineer. And I had a catcher's mitt, because it, it was so close. And Lon said, if you don't put that on your hand, you won't have time by the time the ball comes back to put it on your hand and try to catch it, so put it on. Italian balls would come back so fast, I had no chance, even with a glove on, to stop them. And you, t- you duck real quick, and you could see all the dents on the back where the balls would come straight back and hit. And it was scary. It was scary to broadcast there, but it was fun because you actually could hear. I remember Brad Osmus, who's now managing Angels. He was catching. Hey, Brad, how you doing? And, you know, wave to him, and <laughs> you could hear everything. He's talking to the umpire, the hitter, the pitcher. Everything could be heard. It was a very unique stadium to the point that uh, I, I hated to see it go. I hated to see an old vintage-type stadium become extinct and to the point that uh, they have a new one. I mean, this is great at Comerica Park, but Tiger Stadium was special. Yeah, they 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 went the complete opposite with yeah. their new yard. They were as far away from home plate as you can get yeah. compared to then. Yeah. Sounds like you were right on top of home plate. Well, we were definitely on top of it. And, again, it, it was unique, and, and you had to walk down. But i never forget looking over the Tiger broadcast booth, and I'd see Ernie Harvard, and I'd see that net in front. He said, I'm not going to have these balls come back at me. That net stopped them. And he didn't mind looking through this mesh – wire or not what wire but uh like they use now down the third and first base line to protect the fans i mean he was actually looking through it. he said i'd rather protect myself than worry about that next time we do this we're going to be in cleveland you know cleveland's a great city and and again we're going to see a new stadium and I think about the mistake by the lake the old municipal stadium and which is now home of the cleveland browns the rock and roll hall of fame is down there but uh the cleveland stadium is downtown and uh it's a very nice stadium but it's a, it's a good one to think about but just like comerica park much different than uh tiger stadium but tiger stadium to me one of the grand old places to ever play Another edition of Green and Gold History, and the next time we do this, we'll be in Cleveland honoring Ray Fossey, one of the great 100. You're, uh, you, what, what, do they? Do you have a number, or are you just all just 
your top 100 in, in Indians history. We're just part of the top 100. I, I have a plaque out in center field at Heritage Park. We, we should do this at Heritage Park because Bobby DiBiase did a great job, and the plaques are out there, the statues are there, the Hall of Famers, and it, it's a great place in straightaway center, similar to Comerica Park, but it's all the trees and a beautiful area for fans to go watch and look at all the greatness of the Cleveland organization, and uh, you and I will be right there looking at the Ray Fossey signed plaque on the wall. Cannot wait. Another edition of Green and Gold History right here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 